You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome to Real Vision. It's Monday, November 16, 2020, just after market close in New York. This is the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Ash Bennington, joined shortly by our managing editor, Ed Harrison. But first, with the day's stories, Jack Farley. Thanks, Ash. Stocks surged higher on the news of Moderna's successful vaccine trial, with the Dow and the S&P 500 hitting all-time highs. The high flyers of the day were almost all stocks who are banking on a successful reopening. Your cruise liners, your oil field services, your commercial real estate plays. The airlines were up as well, as were the hapless movie theaters, the railroads, and of course the oil drillers. One thing we're not seeing is a significant sell-off from tech. As I'm recording this, Microsoft and Google are holding firm. Apple's actually up, Netflix is barely down a point, and Zoom, the ultimate leverage play on the stay-at-home economy, is down only 3.5%. Actually, the only sector within the S&P that's down is pharmaceuticals, funny enough, with Pfizer taking a hit as it appears that Moderna's vaccine doesn't need the deep freeze technology that Pfizer's does. Meanwhile, the VIX cash actually increased, flirting with the 24 level. It's quite rare, as you know, for the VIX to rise with equities. Uh, In fact, we did see that in late August, early September, uh, right before we had those jitters in U.S. equities. In other news, IBM announced today that they'll buy IT services company Truqua. This is actually remarkable timing because in today's interview, Jim Chanos talks to Mike Green about IBM and its history of making dubious acquisitions. Here's what Jim had to say. When IBM decided to buy Red Hat for $34 billion in debt, um, to to jumpstart their cloud business, um, we decided to take another look. Stock was trading around 140, 150. And what we saw kind of shocked us. That Chanos interview today is actually the first in our series called Paradigm Shift, Investment Ideas for a World in Flux. I'll include a link in the description. So today was Jim, Chanos, and Mike Green. Tomorrow, Raul's going to be speaking to Hugh Hendry. They're going to be talking about the dollar, gold, Bitcoin, uh, and actually negative rates. I actually just watched the interview. There's a great moment where Hugh says, negative 50 basis points? Really, European Central Bank? I'm not impressed. So I did not do it justice to Hugh, but it's a great moment. We're going to be running this interview series, this journey of discovery throughout the entire year. So we're going to be speaking to Sam Zell, Chameth Palapatia, Jim Grant, Jeremy Grantham, Kyle Bass is coming on. If you want to watch these interviews, if you want in on this and you're not a member of Real Vision, uh, just click the link in the description below and you can sign up to Real Vision for just a dollar. With that, let's go back to Ash and Ed. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Thanks, Jack. Welcome, Ed. Happy Monday to you, Ash. Happy Monday. Happy Monday, indeed. You know, uh, markets up. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And up across time horizons. 
Yes. So, you know, uh, that's what we're going to talk about. Uh, there are a lot of different things, uh, ways to look at this. Uh, I wanted to piggyback a little bit off of Jack and what he had to say today and also what he and I talked about on Thursday. You know, the, the, the gist of the conversation on Thursday was that we were talking about three market themes, risk on versus risk off, inflation. Uh, and we were also talking about the rotation into value over growth. I think the first of the three is the most important one today. Uh, we're definitely in risk on mode. And then in addition to that, there is a slight bent towards value over growth in terms of the rotation that we've seen today. Yeah. Tell us, when you look at that, Ed, what, what are you thinking about uh, in terms of that rotation uh, and why do you think it's significant? Well, you know, the framework that I laid out for Jack was that there were three questions we were asking ourselves. One was how quickly the, the vaccine can be administered at scale. Two, how much damage will the virus do before that actually happens? And then the third is how much impact will this damage have on the economy uh, in terms of things that will translate into earnings or the lack thereof? And I think that the first, in terms of the Moderna uh, outlook, is very positive. I, the, re the reason that people like Moderna is, you know, you don't need to have a deep freeze. They talked about 94% effectiveness, which is higher than the number that we got from Pfizer. So all of those things uh, look really good in terms of the ability of this vaccine to uh, to bring us back to a a new normal that is closer to the old normal. Yeah, I think that's key. You know, a lot of the things that it comes down to around this vaccine are production capacity uh, and distribution. And the fact that it doesn't have to be in a deep freeze, the Moderna vaccine doesn't have to be in a deep freeze, a major advantage, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. So I think that uh, when people talk about how quickly the the vaccine could be administered at scale, the Moderna news gives us two data points. One is is that we have not just one uh, vaccine, but we have two, and likely we'll have many more. I saw that AstraZeneca was talking about the ability to get a vaccine out that will go to other places, and then we also have the fact that. Uh, there's a deep you you won't need a deep freeze so it's going to be much easier to administer it than it would be otherwise pretty impressive job here by the research and development folks at these pharma companies to be able to scale up a vaccine this quickly yeah i, I think the people who have been optimistic about the ability to get a vaccine out jay Pulaski comes to mind those are the people who are right on the money uh we we've gotten the the news of the vaccine now i think what markets are pricing in is uh just how quickly can it get done how the vaccine's going to be here and it's going to be largely effective uh, the question is is how quickly can we administer it and therefore uh how how much of the 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 old new normal can we unwind and then move towards a new normal that's closer to the the life that we had before yeah. the, uh the coronavirus hit us yeah, we should also add the efficacy in the field, uh, the duration of immunity. There are some, uh, there are definitely some parameters that are sort of hard uh, pharma parameters that we need to establish as well in the field, which is uh, sometimes not always the same as what happens when you test it in clinical trials. You know, and so I think just taking a step back in terms of how I'm thinking about things, uh, just to make a hard shift. Yeah, we're talking about Moderna and Pfizer. And we're talking about news flow affecting sentiment uh, in terms of risk on risk, risk off. But I think that there's a, a more a macro lens, you know, that the 
news flow that we had today only adds to a general sense that we want to have a risk on. I think when you look at the wall of money that's waiting to hit uh, in terms of the amount of money that people have saved up, the if you look at the savings rate in the United States, uh, and if you look at the ability for people to consume going forward, there is the potential that there's pent up demand both for asset prices and also for consumption that will buoy the economy. So I think on a just a general uh, a flows perspective, uh, there's all of that. And my interview with Michael House still keeps coming back into mind. The fact that he said that when you look at central bank largesse in particular, uh, there's there's this wall of money that emanates from them first and foremost, and that has to be distributed in some capacity into assets. And and as a result, asset prices uh, writ large, that includes real estate, that includes financial assets, they all go up on some level, that that's, that's priced in uh, to 2021 from his analysis. So I, to me, that's a very interesting uh, concept, especially with the backdrop being very positive on an economic front. Yeah, we discussed this a little bit on Thursday, of course, uh, but it's it's he's very bullish uh, as a result of his analysis. And he's been doing this work for, I think, 30 some odd years looking at liquidities, uh, asset prices and flows, uh, you know, dating back, uh, as I said, decades. Uh, so it's an interesting perspective. Can you give us a little bit more color on why Michael is so bullish? I think what Michael Howell was saying is, is that we had a torrent of liquidity that was produced uh, and it more than made up for the liquidity crisis that we had earlier in the year. And if you look at the differential in terms of the amount of liquidity that's been added to the system and the rise in asset prices in a general sense, not just financial assets, but we're talking about uh, house prices, et cetera, there's still a lot to be had in terms of a catch up. And he thinks that 2021 is bullish as a result of that. That's his main thesis, is that really, at the end of the day, uh, the amount of liquidity overwhelms everything else and that this will flow through into an increase in asset prices. Right. So new liquidity comes into the system. It's got to find a home somewhere. It goes into assets one way or another. Exactly. And it doesn't have to be financial assets. It can be other sorts of assets. And so he's looking for a, a more sort of macro asset and he's looking at global liquidity. So that means China. It means the ECB. It means the Bank of Japan. It means banks, uh, the whole bit, uh, the whole kit and caboodle. And that number has gone up markedly, and that should flow through to asset prices as a result. That's his thesis. Yeah, you know, and talking about asset prices and, and the run we were on today, I, I've been playing this little game here. I've, I've got uh, S&P 500, Dow Jones Industrial Average, NASDAQ, and Russell 2000 on a chart, and I'm clicking through the different time horizons. It's all up and to the right, obviously. Um, but when you look from the five-year, the two-year, the one-year, NASDAQ outperforms. When you get to year-to-date, NASDAQ still outperforms. Click over one more six-month time horizon, Russell 2000. Three-month, one-month, five-day, one-day, Russell 2000 outperforms. Yeah, very interesting, actually. I mean, the question is, is are we on the cusp of a value over growth outperformance? And if so, for how long? I yeah. think that uh, that was actually where I was going next in terms of how I was thinking, because, you know, right before we came on, I was telling you, I was looking at my screen and everything was green except for very few pieces. And the things that uh, were the most, uh, if I can take a look here, uh, that I found the most green uh, were the the values uh, 
And, you know, in particular, I looked at uh, FedEx up 7.63%. I thought that was very interesting. Uh, is that a, uh, a cyclical stock? Uh, you see the likes of Valero Energy up 4.77%, ConocoPhillips, uh, Phillips 66. So to me, uh, that speaks a lot to the fact that we're at a turn. You look at Lyft up 2.44%, uh, a perfect uh, another example. So I think that it's uh, a lot of people are starting to price in um, the ability for the cyclical stocks to turn. As Jack was saying, it's not just uh, he was talking specifically about the beaten down stocks like, um, you know, the likes of uh, uh, Carnival Cruises and, the, and so forth. But I'm saying that in general value stocks, uh, stocks that uh, w were not doing as well in the stay-at-home market, they seem to be doing incredibly well, including FedEx, which was doing well in the stay-at-home market. Yeah, FedEx, it seems like a stock that wins uh, either way, right? FedEx, uh, is as the economy picks up and also as the uh, if lockdowns continue for whatever reason, you got the stay-at-home play. Yeah, uh, so I even before the pandemic, I looked at FedEx as a bellwether, especially in terms of the uh, the holiday season, you know, if FedEx is not doing well, then that says right. something about what consumer demand is like. You know, yeah, but I should add, we're just talking structurally here, and, and this is not to do with any idiosyncratic uh, news flow that might be around the stock right now. Right. Yeah, you know, um, the, the, the caveat to everything that we're saying is, is uh, you know, I said that I was asking three questions, how quickly can the vaccine be administered at scale? And we were very bullish. But, you know, the two questions that we haven't answered here uh, that I think that we need to keep in mind is how much damage will the virus do beforehand and then how much impact will that have on the economy? I think at a minimum, what we can say in terms of the amount of damage that the virus is going to do before we have a vaccine that's administered at scale is a lot of damage, you know, from a, a public health perspective. The numbers that we're seeing are up to 12, 13, 1400 deaths a day. Uh, I believe that that number based on things that I've seen, it will be in the range of 2000 uh, by the time we hit uh, the the Thanksgiving holidays. And, and then we'll just have to see you know, how quickly that'll be arrested. You see the likes of North Dakota now issuing uh, mask mandates. You see shutdowns increasing, uh, more lockdowns increasing uh, in a lot of different places. That's definitely going to have an effect at the margin. Uh, growth is going to roll over. Uh, the more shutdown we have, the more likely uh, it not only rolls over, but goes negative and we have a double dip the way that you should expect in Europe. Yeah, it does sort of concern me around the euphoria about the vaccine uh, that there is definitely going to be this period uh, during which, you know, there's going to be this perhaps uh, loosening up of standards, the fatigue, the sense of relief because there's a vaccine. Uh, but this virus is still out there. It's still doing a lot of damage. You know, we just finished uh, the uh, passing the November 11th date, 11-11, 11th hour at the 11 minute. And I'm reminded uh, of the the guys who died in that war between the time that the armistice was negotiated and the time it was signed. And it's it's a great tragedy when that happens, obviously. Yeah, uh, it is a great tragedy. We're just waiting for uh, some sort of uh, vaccine to, to give us that medical bailout, as I call it. And uh, there's a lot of time between now and then. And every death that happens is uh, is unfortunate between now and then. But we're at a crescendo period. And so it's going to be a lot of people who are going to lose their lives before we can administer these vaccines at scale. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, it is definitely something to think about. 
you know, from just because we're talking about the financial aspects of it, the question then becomes, what does that mean financially? I think that it, it has two impacts. One is uh, that some companies are going to go to the wall. Uh, you can definitely talk about small businesses. You can talk about those places like uh, restaurants, like uh, gyms, like movie theaters that are uh, the subject of a lot of this uh, of, of the uh, the rollbacks. And then uh, the question becomes for everyone else, what does that mean for their earnings going forward? Because we're only talking about a very small percentage to the degree that you look at things in a positive way. It could be that you're actually, uh, you know, pulling back some of the uh, the earnings that earnings that should have happened now during the vaccine or before the pre-vaccine period happens later. And so we get an uptick in growth because there's that pent up demand. And so yeah. ultimately, you know, the negative impact for the average company might be less uh, than than you might otherwise think. It's the ones who lose demand that, that the demand uh, that they could have had during this period of time doesn't exist uh, going forward. They can't, you know, do an intertemporal shift from today to tomorrow. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Yeah, you're talking about the shift in the time horizons, and that seems like such a critical point. You know, you've spent your career thinking about these kinds of issues around economics. How do you think about the lag? Uh, you know, obviously, there's a there's a there's what you're talking about the intertemporal shifts. These ideas that time frames don't always align. Uh, you know, it, it seems it seems based on the news today, and we don't know, and it will take more time before we do that. This could be something of a magic bullet, the thing that everyone always seeks. Uh, and if we do that, even if you were able to get this vaccine and you knew that it had uh, near 95 percent efficacy, it takes time to deploy it. And there are also those those time shifts uh, between when, for example, uh, revenue is recognized, when economic activity begins. How do you think about that? How do you begin to get your head around all those issues? Because they're complicated. Yeah. So, I mean, you can think about in terms of a discounted cash flow model for these companies and the percentage of earnings that happens at various points in time and then what the discount is from one time to the next. So a perfect example would be, let's say your typical value type of company that uh, six to 10 percent of uh, their earnings is in year one, year zero to one. And then, uh, you know, you have a, a bunch of other earnings that are you know, six to ten percent per year after that, as an example. So, if you miss out on earnings and they ne it never comes back, it was ephemeral from the beginning. You're only missing out on six to ten percent, therefore, of the entire earnings pool that you, as a investor in that company, are uh, are are subject to. And so, really, the the, the shares should only go down by six to ten percent as a result of that. The, uh, the second part is, is how much of that is, is there any hysteresis there in terms of uh, are we the new normal is that change from the old normal? You know, Carnival Cruise Lines is the perfect example of that. Uh, the new normal is not going to be uh, kind to cruise ships because we already know the first cruise ship that came back after the whole virus uh, uh, lockdown uh, was reopened 
there were coronavirus cases on that ship and uh, they had to stop again. So that's a, a an industry that's just going to be crushed, uh, not just in year one or year two, but I think there's going to be residual effects over the, the longer term. And the last thing is has to do with growth rates. You know, so when I say six to 10 percent, when you're thinking about the DCF, you're thinking about how many how much money am I paying for one uh, part of this sh- of the sh- the earnings that I'm getting out of this company. You know, if I'm paying 10 times earnings, uh, then that means that a lot more of the earnings are front loaded to today. Uh, so that means that if there's a shift, it's not as problematic for you. If you're if there's a backloaded earnings because you are a a high growth company, uh, if that money is therefore shifted. Uh, further back, that's a huge change in terms of how much uh, you know people are going to get. So let's say it's a hundred times earnings, and you expected a certain amount of earnings here today, and that gets shifted back a year or two years. Then that's going to have a, a massive impact on the uh, the outcome uh, for the 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 discounted cash flow of that company. I hope that makes sense. Yeah. That's the beginning of a framework, I think, that people can start to use to understand how you think about it. By the way, critical jargon alert, hysteresis uh, refers to the effect where you have inputs and outputs within a system and the relationship starts to break down. It's used in economics and physics. But the idea is basically that the old rules uh, don't necessarily apply when one of the variables moves dramatically out of range. Yeah. And, you know, when I was talking about uh, the high growth companies, I'm thinking about the stay-at-home companies, the fangs, et cetera. So if those companies suddenly, you know, a, a huge chunk of their earnings that you expected to happen in year zero to year one, then therefore gets moved back uh, intertemporally, uh, given the fact that you have huge growth expectations from those companies, that should have a much more meaningful impact on the on their discounted cash flow valuation. So I think that uh, you, you know, the jury's still out on this first blush of uh, reaction to the Moderna news. It could well be that we're going to see a much bigger shift to value over growth than we have seen thus far. And so I think that the value over growth paradigm has some legs to it. Uh, uh, and, and, we, and it's still not over as yet. Very interesting. And you also said something earlier that that kind of perked up my attention. You were talking about the cash that's sitting on the sidelines. Obviously, we're in a period right now uh, where there's a little bit of political uncertainty here in the U.S. Uh, the extent to which you believe there is political uncertainty uh, perhaps depends on your party and how you think about uh, the election. But I was watching a few minutes. It's about uh, 4.30 here as we're finishing up filming. Uh, I was watching a few minutes of Joe Biden speaking uh, about the economy, President-elect Joe Biden, uh, by most uh, by most accounts, at least. And, uh, you know, irrespective of the politics, who you voted for, um, who you voted against, he seemed to be a man who was very much in control of the facts. He seemed to understand the narrative. He seemed to be aware of the challenges the country faces, both economically uh, and uh, and on the virus front. You know, to what extent do you think when there is a political resolution to this, when we have, as we all expect, a peaceful transfer of power, as we have uh, for hundreds of years in this country, to what extent do you foresee uh, some of that cash coming off the sidelines and into this rally. Yeah, you know it's hard to say because I'm I'm thinking about something a a friend of mine uh, wrote in one of his uh, uh, latest blog posts. A guy by the name of Alan Tonelson. 
He's a conservative who is a, um, you know, a, um, a, a America firster. And he, uh, he, you know, he's he's backed Trump in the past and, and likes the move that Trump is making. Yeah. And what he had to say, which I think is, uh, you know, it's not within the vein of I'm very pro Trump and uh, this is rigged and all this other stuff. It's more, OK, Biden's coming. Uh, what are the constraints in him? He, this is what he wrote that I found interesting. He said it's entirely possible that a Biden administration won't be able to undo many of President Trump's signature domestic and foreign policy is at least for years. And it even looks likely if the Senate remains uh, that the Senate remains Republican. Uh, and then he says, think about that issue by issue. And he goes through all of these issues. And what it says to me is that uh, the election outcome, which was much more uh, down the middle, it wasn't yeah. a landslide for one group or the other. Uh, it might actually mean that the shift that we're going to have from a policy perspective is not going to be great. So to me, that's something that's interesting to be thinking about. And to the degree that Biden might want to make some changes, especially on those issues that the progressives are much more uh, um, interested in, he would have to uh, to wait. He can't use executive orders per se to to get that done, and he might not even be able to undo a lot of the things that uh, that um, Trump pushed through. Moreover, you know, if you look at the conservative Democrats, they're not on board with uh, you know pushing forward a very progressive uh, type of policy framework because. Many of them almost lost. Abigail Spanberger, as an example, who uh, uh, is someone who was in Virginia and w went down to the wire whether or not she could uh, hold on to a seat that she took from Dave Bratt two years ago. Those kinds of people, they're the you know when you only have ten seats or twelve seats differential, they're not going to sign up, and you're not going to be able to get through very progressive legislation. So the long and short of what Alan was saying and what m makes sense to me is, is is that we're not going to see a massive shift uh, from a policy perspective, irrespective of the fact that Biden is much more of a centrist uh, than he is a progressive. Yeah. I'm also curious, uh, Alan Tonelson, someone who's been interested in, in free trade and industrial decline for a very long time. I'm curious, does this lack of shift uh, that he perceives in the incoming Biden administration. Does that bode uh, well for markets? Is he bullish, therefore, as a consequence? Yeah, I think that uh, he, uh, I think steady as she goes, if you will, uh, in terms of economic policy, it's much more in terms of tone and foreign policy where you'll see some shifts. Right. But in terms of the economic policy, really, there's not going to be a massive shift and I think, generally speaking, Wall Street's very much uh, in favor of that. I, obviously, there are big problems in terms of inequality, uh, you know, uh, healthcare provisioning, and things like that. Things that the progressives are very interested in. But Wall Street is very much uh, looking for uh, a steady as she goes kind of thing. Uh, Biden has said that he's going to provide that. And I think that he is also restricted to a degree uh, to be able to provide that. So the 2020 election may not actually be the the election that yields this massive uh, change that yeah. people were expecting. And of course, it's not over yet. We're not going to know the uh, constituency of the Senate and who ultimately controls 
that body until uh, January 5th at the earliest because of the runoff elections, multiple two Senate races down in Georgia. That's right. Yeah. And I think that the what I found interesting about Allen's uh, uh, analysis is, is that it's not even dependent upon those two races, that even with uh, the, the, uh, the, 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 the margins are so narrow and there are enough conservatives, uh, who concerned conservative Democrats were concerned about the position that it really restricts the ability to go with very progressive legislation in either the house or the Senate. And just because of that, it, it means that we're unlikely to see, you know, policy changes that are wide reaching, uh, at least for the next two years until we have the midterms in 2022. Yeah, very well summed up. And any final thoughts on what you're going to be looking at at the next couple of days here? Yeah, so I think uh, going back to what I was saying about value over growth, I'm going to definitely be looking at you know what the tendency is for value stocks to do well, especially banks, because uh, you know the you really will if banks do well. What it's saying that is that the uh, loan provisioning that they need going forward to account for losses is going to be less. And I'm also going to be looking for just the general tone of the market uh, going up. Dow 30,000, I think, is, is, is within striking distance right now. And uh, who would have thought after a pandemic uh, that we'd be hitting Dow 30,000? But here we are. It's a good question. Ed, do we have hats? Yeah, I was looking for a hat, but no, I don't. I don't have. A, maybe I'll have to get my twenty thousand and like you know. Uh, uh, I'm sure someone on CNBC is going to have a Dow thirty thousand hat on. I don't doubt it for a second. <laughs> Ed Harrison, thanks for joining us. You bet. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.